Welcome to Jumpstart Your Joy. I'm your host, Paula Jenkins. I invite you to join me as we explore how inspiring people have chosen joy in their lives and what they have to share with us about how to jumpstart joy in the world. Plus, how do we follow our own hearts, find work that lights us up while mindfully noticing the role joy plays in our own journey. Welcome to episode 104. This is Paula Jenkins, the host of Jumpstart Your Joy. This week, I am so honored to have Caitlin Greer Meister on to share about her role as a voice actor, an entrepreneur, a mentor to artists, and an educational consultant. She is a beautiful way of describing her work as two careers in concert, as she is a multi-passionate person that is truly doing two things she loves that help support each other. She openly talks about the pervasive opinion among artists that one must suffer for your art, and she shares about how everyone should follow their art and passion with the best energy that you can. She also walks us through how you can find your way to creating a career in concert that works and that supports you as well by following the money, the meaning, and the freedom that you desire. First, let me say that I am so glad you are here. Thank you so much for listening and joining in each week. If you're new to the show, you can find out more information about the podcast at jumpstartyourjoy.com, and I publish show notes with more information about each episode, including links to the guest's website and my additional thoughts on our topics, and you can find them for this episode at jumpstartyourjoy.com slash episode 104. While you're over at the site, I invite you to register for my free e-course, which is Joy Plus You Unleashed. It's a fun self-paced class that guides you through how to make more room for joy in your life. There's a sign-up form right on the homepage, so just drop your name and your email there and you'll be all set. And while you're at the website, you can also find past episodes and nearly eight years of blog posts that I've written to help you find more joy in your life. So for this week's interview, growing up, Caitlin Greermeister really loved reading books, and now she is a voice actor, education consultant, and a multi-passionate through and through. I love what she has to say about being authentic to yourself, especially when she speaks about how people react joyfully to authenticity. She shares about freeing yourself from external myths and the freedom that comes with naming and stepping outside those myths and external expectations that come with them. I know that you're going to be inspired what she has to say about connections and joy. So let's get on to the interview with Caitlin. Welcome to the podcast today. I am so excited to have Caitlin Greer Meister on the show. Welcome to the podcast, Caitlin. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yes, thrilled, thrilled to have you. Would you like to tell us what you loved most as a child or in school? What were your earliest sparks of joy? I loved to read. And Mm. I actually remember being about eight years old and my parents sitting me down and telling me that it was no longer polite to read at the dinner table. (laughs) because when I was a little kid, and I think we all do this with our kids, we want them to behave themselves in restaurants. So we let them do some sort of activity while the adults are talking out in a restaurant over dinner. And mine was always reading. And then I got to a certain age where my parents said, you know what, you're old enough that it's expected that you're going to participate in the conversation. No more reading under the table. And I still remember feeling like, what? (laughs) Already? 
Yeah, I used to read and watch TV at the same time. I used to read on the subway, commuting home from school, let's say, and not want to stop when we got to our station. And I remember I would walk and read, and my mom would be like guiding me by the shoulder so I didn't crash into anything on the subway platform <laughs> <laughs> with my nose in a book. So that was definitely my joy as a kid. That is amazing. What were some of your favorite books? I was a voracious reader, so I read a variety of stuff. I do remember, and I know you could talked about this with another guest on your podcast, The Babysitter's Club books. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that was Andy Fairbanks loves The Babysitter Club. Yeah. And the thing about those Babysitter's Club books is that, you know, they came out once a month and they only lasted me a couple of hours. So I would wait for the next one to come out and I would immediately go get it and I would sit and read it so fast and then it was another month to wait and I just remember that cycle. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. Yes. Well, and that thing of like, you know, you're about to finish. There's that. I want to get to the last page, but I don't want to get to the last page. I still have that now as an adult. I mm-hmm. don't like to only have 10 or 15 pages left at the end of a book. So when I'm reading, I try to keep count how close am I to the end. So I either go through all the way to the end or I stop 20 or more pages before the end. <laughs> Because if I put it down and there are 10 pages left, when I pick it up the next time, I feel like it just wasn't enough to get totally immersed and then it's over. Yes. Yes. I've done that before too. And it usually, especially a really good book. And then you're up until like 4 a.m. And like, why did I do that to myself? But (laughs) oh, yes. Mm, Good stuff. Well, would you like to explain what it is that you do now? So I have two careers in concert. I am a voiceover artist and I voice video games, audiobooks, animation, TV and radio commercials, and I absolutely love it and I am incredibly grateful to have achieved what I have in that field and to continue to be able to do it. And then my other career is I run a private tutoring and educational consulting practice called the Greer Meister Group. And, you know, when I go to cocktail parties and people ask me, what do those two things have in common? My answer is me. (laughs) (laughs) I I am what those two things have in common. So what started to happen was other artists noticed that I was doing this and they started to ask me, how did I do that? How did I make that work? How can I stay unequivocally dedicated to my art and also pursue an entire other career in concert with that? And I started, you know, mentoring a couple of people and giving some advice and saying, you know, this is how I did it and here's how you can do it too. And that grew. And now I am working actually on a book based on that idea of how artists can remain unequivocally dedicated to their art and also pursue another career in concert so that they have the lifestyle that they're looking for. Mm. Yes. And I know you mentioned we communicated over email and that you really can resonate with the multi-passionate, multi-potentialite, whatever that word is that people like to use to describe themselves when it is that you can't really define yourself with just the one thing. Yeah. In case you couldn't tell from my description. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, podcaster, project manager, coach, consultant, whatever. Yeah, I do all those things too. And I don't know. So what is your takeaway or what's the like juicy center of the part about artists being unequivocally dedicated to their craft? Like what's come out of that for you and how do people get stuck? You know, I think the thing about being a multi-potentialite or multi-passionate that is so interesting when it comes to talking about artists is that 
When we see artists who pursue multiple avenues that we consider to be within the arts, so Lin-Manuel Miranda is the poster child for this right now. He does six different things, but we consider them all to be arts. We have a tendency to glorify that or romanticize that. Yet when we see somebody who pursues multiple interests and they're not all what we would consider the arts, we Mm -hmm. often have a judgment for that. We say, oh, well, she must have to do that other thing. And she must be less dedicated to her art because she does that other thing. Or he must not be as successful at his art and therefore has to do this other thing to earn an income. And that doesn't serve us as artists. It does not freeing and doesn't give us the opportunity to pursue our art with the best energy that we can So that's a big thing that I'm talking to artists about, breaking down these myths that have come from some sort of external source, and yet we've internalized them as though they are these objective truths. If I pursue something in addition to my art, I will be perceived as less dedicated, or I will be perceived as less successful. It's a myth, and it hasn't been true for me, and it hasn't been true for the other artists out there who are doing more than one thing. So that's a big part of my message. Yes. Ooh, yes. I love that because it does seem like there is what the current myth that that is how it works, that you're an artist and, and it's pure. But I mean, even historically, it feels like we can look back and see many multipotentialites who followed more than one thing in their life. And then I guess I'm thinking of great artists, but like it doesn't have to be just one thing. And it almost seems like there's a multiplier effect when you start to follow more than one thing. Yeah. Well, you know, what started to happen for me was in the beginning, I was what I call a clandestine entrepreneur. So I would go to auditions or I would go to bookings. I'd be talking to other actors and artists. And I wouldn't mention that I had this whole other career because I was afraid. I was afraid of being judged as less successful or less dedicated. And I wouldn't tell my tutoring clients that I pursued an art because I was afraid they'd think I was less dedicated to them. And I was young. You know, and as I gained more success in both fields and got more comfortable with who I am and my authentic self, I said, This is who I am. This is my authentic self. And I started to talk about everything with everyone in the sense that I'd be at a booking or I'd be at an audition and somebody would say, What's new with you? And I'd start talking about my work in education. Or I'd be talking with one of my students who wanted to pursue a career in the arts. And so I would naturally begin to talk about my artistry. And contrary to my fears, the response was overwhelmingly positive because Mm. people respond joyfully to authenticity. And when I was out there being my authentic self, people were responding to that joyfully, positively. And suddenly I'm hearing stories of, I do that too, but I just never talk about it. Or I really want to do that. How do you do that? How can I do that? And it opened up a whole new depth to those relationships and those conversations and opportunities to pursue other projects because I was being out and open. I was no longer a clandestine anything. Yes. Ooh. And I'm thinking back too to the, I guess that was just season two with Matt Marr. He's also what a comedian and a consultant. And I'm just saying that for the audience. Like if you listen back, a lot of these same things pull through, which is this really awesome idea that when you're really authentic, then people react to that and that you don't have to be anybody else. Because it feels like there's a lot of shoulds in that kind of toxic myth that you're describing. How do people let go of that kind of either the should mentality of, and by that, in case somebody's not following what I'm saying, like, there's a sense that I should only be focused on my art. Otherwise, I'm not being a true artist or whatever that is. How do we let go of that if, if somebody's hearing it and they're like, yeah, I do feel like I should just follow one thing, but I have more than one interest. And sometimes 
I mean, I'll be honest here on the podcast side of it. Sometimes the art doesn't pay for the rest of the life. <laughs> so how does somebody get past that? Right. Well, the key here is it's about freedom. It's about freeing yourself. Those myths, and there are several of them, I can talk about what some of the other ones are. Those myths limit us. And my message is about the opposite. My message is about freeing yourself. You know, we tend to romance this idea of the starving artist. You know, we picture a painter in a cold water flat, you know, can't even afford the electricity. And I don't think that that's romantic. I don't think that there's anything inherently noble about suffering for your art. And I think that the first step that you're asking about is identifying that they're myths. Because I think this happens on a personal level too. We hear enough people say something about ourselves and we begin to believe that it's true. And we can begin to feel pressured by that label or that identifier. So I'm giving you an example. Let's say somebody always says about you, oh, you are the perfect dinner party guest. Every time you come, you bring the perfect hostess gifts. You make the best conversation. Everybody loves having you there. You can begin to feel pressured by that. You know, what happens then if you want to come to a dinner party in your pajamas and you're not feeling well and you say the wrong thing and suddenly you can start to realize, well, that's something that somebody said about me. That's not necessarily something that I cultivated in myself or think is important. So it's a little bit of a frivolous example. But when we begin to identify the myths and then we identify that they came from outside of ourselves, then we can go, well, wait a minute, I can build my own narrative about my identity. Is that something I want? to be valuable about myself? Or do I not value that as much? So some of these other myths, we can talk about some more. This idea that, you know, you have to have a soul-sucking day job. This is a big one. That you have to have a plan B to fall back on when you abandon your art. And then, of course, the big one we've been talking about, which is that if you pursue more than one thing, that you're somehow considered less dedicated or less successful at your art. Right. Yeah. There's so much there to unpack. Like, what do you have to say about the myth? I'm drawn to the one about you have to have a soul-sucking day job. And I think that one comes up big. There are a lot of coaches, a lot of people who, what I call healing arts, you know, that they may do something beyond a creative thing that's, you know, singing or dancing or, you know, pen on paper. But how do we get past that idea that I have to have a soul-sucking day job in order to either support my creative pursuits? Or is there a different, I don't know, a different match there that happens where we sometimes find something that we can do that helps us get through the day job. And then there's like something in concert, as you have been saying. Yeah, that's the careers in concert. That's exactly the message. You know, a day job is considered soul sucking and it's for subsistence purposes only. I just need the money and I'm going to ditch this as fast as I can, as soon as I can. I think that's the wrong path. Artists have incredible transferable skills. And for anybody listening who might not be familiar with that term, what transferable skills means is skills that you developed for one purpose, but that you find are actually really, really valuable for other purposes. You can transfer them to those other purposes. Artists tend to have phenomenal transferable skills, but a lot of times we don't realize it because we're surrounded by other artists who have those same skills. And we don't realize that in other places, those skills would be tremendously valuable. So actors tend to be really great communicators, good readers of body language, good at developing interpersonal skills. Authors are great at written communication, you know, and give you a whole bunch of examples like that. Mm -hmm. So a career in concert differs from a day job. And here's how. A career in concert has three pillars, money, 
meaning, and freedom. Money is, it has to provide you with financial stability because you already have enough instability with your art. You don't need that twice. Meaning is that it's going to be different for each person. Meaning could be you feel emotionally connected to your clients and so it's meaningful. It could be that it uses a different part of your brain than your art and so that's meaningful. It frankly could be that it makes you enough money that that in and of itself is meaningful to you and that's totally fine. And then freedom. And the freedom piece is it has to give you the flexibility to pursue artistic opportunities when they arise. Because again, the premise here is that you are remaining unequivocally dedicated to your art. That's the starting off point for any conversation that I'm having. So you can't choose another pursuit. Your career in concert can't be something that doesn't give you the flexibility to pursue the artistic opportunities when you have them. And that's really it. You don't need to take a day job that you find soul-sucking. You're doing just for subsistence. And you want to bail on the second that you can. That's not going to increase your joy. I mean, by definition, right? (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm nodding like so fast. I mean, if you could hear nods, like I'm sure it would be blaring. But (laughs) I love this distinction because what? There's so much pressure, I think, from the one side to just get something to pay the bills. And I love what you're saying that the thing doesn't have to just be that and that you're recognizing for other people, too, that like then that's going to be the thing that's going to have you running for the hills. And then that stress and it doesn't bring freedom. And then you get wound up in that. I mean, clearly speaking from personal experience, (laughs) then it's hard to even pursue the thing that you love because you're so stressed out about how do I either get out of this bad situation or how do I, I don't even know, how do I find something that would work better, but still be just sustaining me? And so thank you (laughs) for bringing this (laughs) up. (laughs) It's really funny, Paula, because For me, I basically reverse engineered these ideas, right? Mm -hmm. I built the life that I wanted for myself. And then I stepped back. And when other artists and particularly aspiring artists younger than I am were asking me, how did I do this? It made me pause and really, you know, do some reflecting and say, well, how did I do this? And my tutoring practice is not the first attempt I've made at a career in concert. I had a couple of others before this. And They were successful in certain ways and failures in certain ways. And why did this one work so well? So I stepped back and I reverse engineered it. And I went, okay, well, what worked and what didn't work? And then I broke that down into a series of really actionable steps. I'm all about things being actionable. I want somebody to tell me, you know, here's how I did it and here's how you can do it. And Mm -hmm. so that's what I try to provide. So yeah, it's not magic. I'm not magic, I promise. And it's really doable. I mean, it's been a gorgeous journey for me and I'm grateful for where I am. And if I can share that with a few other people, then that makes it even better. Yeah, that's awesome. Because I really feel like it's a refreshing difference. I mean, to hear that you don't have to go after the soul sucking job, because I think that's where people find themselves and then they want to know, how do I get out of this? There's got to be a better way. So also love that you make it actionable because there's also... I don't know. I feel like some coaches, I'll speak from my own experience. It's really that push of, oh, all the answers are inside of you. And you're like, yeah, can I get a little help here? Because <laughs> it might be inside, but let's, let's work on some actionable steps. So I'm very drawn to that as well as a personality type for sure. Maybe the, the J of me, which is the ENFJ of Myers-Briggs. Um, <laughs> I like answers. But yeah, so how did you, I don't know, let's back out a little bit and talk about how did you find your way or or how did you study to become a voice actor? That's a fascinating area and I would love to hear more. Sure. So the quick answer is I never studied to be a voice actor. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I studied to be an actor. 
But one of the tricky things about acting programs is that they often do not teach voiceovers. I don't really know why, because it's a really lucrative, really fulfilling, wonderful avenue of performing arts. And I'm not sure why more acting programs are not highlighting it. So I was studying to be an actor and I graduated from college and I wanted to be supporting myself as an actor in any way that I could without having to wait tables, frankly, is the way that I used to put it. And I was working with an agent for on-camera commercials and somebody in the voiceover department heard something that I did and met with me and said, you should be doing voiceovers. And I said, great, tell me where to take a class because that was my mentality. You know, somebody out there can teach me how to do this thing. And this agent who I'm incredibly grateful, he just happened to hear something in me that I didn't know enough to hear in myself said, don't take a class, just do it. And a week later I had booked my first job. So when people ask me, how did I get into voiceovers versus how can they get into voiceovers? Those are two different answers. I was lucky in the sense that I was in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. It's not all entirely luck. But if somebody asks me, how can I get into voiceovers? I don't tell them to follow that. <laughs> they can just hang out in agents' offices and the off chance that they walk past you and hear a good sound in your voice and ask you to audition for something is not really a, an actionable strategy, as we were just saying. <laughs> yeah. So well, my advice to somebody else would be a little bit different. But that's how I got into it. That is very cool. And I mean, I think that oftentimes multi-passionates often put themselves out there in places and take a chance on things in ways that maybe make them open to other things happening in their lives. Like I can see that even in my own self, not that project management is the same as voiceover work, but it was a similar thing. Like I just happened to be there. They needed a project manager. They're like, Hey, it looks like you got the right skills. <laughs> How about it? And it's like, Oh yeah, I can do that. And it would never have been something I necessarily would have chosen for myself if I'd started down a path. And similarly, there was no such thing as web producing project management. You know, when I went to school that <laughs> there was no right. internet, right? And so you couldn't have learned it. But if somebody's like, okay, well, but how would you go about directing someone if they were saying that that might be a field they're interested? Where could they find out more about voice acting to give it a try or learn more? Yeah, the first piece of advice is to take classes like I wanted to, <laughs> even though they told me not to. But to be careful what classes you take, look for classes that are taught by people who are working in the field, who are working in the industry, and look for personal recommendations from other voiceover artists who are doing what you want to be doing. So if you're looking at somebody like me or somebody else more established in the field and ask them, oh, who do you know who's teaching classes? Because we know if there are casting directors, for example, who we see on a regular basis for auditions, and we know that they happen to also do coaching or teaching classes, we'll tell you that. So that's step one. And then step two is, you need to make a demo. You need to make a voiceover demo and that's what you'll submit to agents and they'll listen to it and they will decide if they want to represent you. To be a union actor, you know, a member of SAG-AFTRA and be working union jobs for the most part requires having an agent here in New York and also in LA. And, you know, that agent is going to be the person who's going to connect you with auditions. And then based on however many auditions you go on, then a certain percentage of them you'll book and those will be the jobs you get to perform. That's really the process. Yeah, I think the thing is, if I had known about voiceovers, I would have studied it. When you said, did you study voice acting in school? If I had known that was a thing, I would yeah. have studied it because it's cool. I mean, it's interesting and it's amazing. And I would have wanted to know more about it. And I think part of that's on me that I didn't step back and go, well, let's see, in that cartoon show, I'm hearing voices. I'm not seeing people's faces. There are actors doing that. What's that called? What are they doing? You know, while 
I fell into it. I definitely would have pursued it had I known more about it to begin with because it's really perfect for me. I just love it. Yeah, I love that. And I love that there's that kind of look back in that daisy chain of events that leads you to where you are and you're realizing, oh, well, yeah, this is right where I should be. Because I think there's also that thing that comes about like either in artistry or also just in life where you wonder about, but how do I get where I'm going and how do I know it's going to be right? And oftentimes it's like, you're already on the path. It's already unfolding. You just don't realize where it's taking you. <laughs> you know, over can... time, in the beginning, when I was first pursuing voiceovers, I was still pursuing every avenue of acting that was available to me because I didn't know it was going to stick. And I was dedicated to making this work. So I was saying yes to every opportunity. And over time, it was the voiceovers that really took off. Mm. And that worked great for me. And I was able to stop scrambling so much to try to fit, you know, a round peg into a square hole. And I was able to say, this is my fit. This is wonderful. And that, talk about being your authentic self. I mean, that was a moment of relaxation for me, of being able to stop pushing everything all the time and saying, this is the right fit. This feels right. You know, I'm enjoying it. The people doing the decision makers, if you will, are choosing me. So it's working for them. And this is really where I want to be. Mm-hmm. And not to mention, no small thing, now that I'm married and I have a child, the voiceover world allows me to be very present in my son's life in a way that other avenues of pursuing being an actor might not. Mm-hmm. Yes. Ooh, I like that too. And interesting that I mean, a lot of us look for balance in one way or another. And I mean, anything with parenting is hard. My son is now seven and it is a big balancing act and it feels like it's kind of a push and pull. I don't know if you want to talk about any of the things that you have found that works that helps you be more present as a mom or if you have any thoughts on that piece. One of the joys of working for myself is having a lot of freedom in my schedule. Freedom's not even really the right word because, you know, if you need to show up somewhere for an audition, you have to be there. But I'm present. I'm home. I'm around. So my schedule is different every day. And for some people, that would make them crazy. You know, they would say, oh, that's not for me. I need to know my routine. I need to know what I'm doing. For me, that works because it means that I get to be there for not just the important events, you know, parent-teacher conferences and other things in my son's life, but for tiny, small moments that I might miss otherwise. And that kind of unpredictability in my schedule comes with its downsides. We need very, very, very flexible and understanding caregivers (laughs) who themselves all happen to be actors, which I think is part of why it works because they get it and I get their needs. And it also requires the fact that my husband has some flexibility in his schedule. But it's just allowed me to be present. You know, my son is three now and it's allowed me to be present for so much of his first three years in a way that I wouldn't have been able to be if I had to go to an office from nine to five every day. And please, let's be realistic. Nine to five is lucky. You know, most people (laughs) I know who are working full-time office jobs are there a lot more hours than that. So in my case, it's not that I'm working any less hard. It's that I have some level of control over the timing of that work. So I can work during his nap time. I can work after he goes to sleep. Now that he's a little bit older, I can work when he goes to school. And that allows me to be present for more of his moments. I love that. 
And I love that it's the recognition of it's not just the big things, but the smaller, tiny moments of I remember one time playing peekaboo between the stairs with my son, and I just felt so grateful that, you know, I decided to take a few more minutes that morning to get to work, you know, like, because <laughs> that little peekaboo game would have never happened if we hadn't slowed down for a moment. Yeah. And look, you know, for some people being a full-time parent, I don't like that phrase, show me a parent who isn't a full-time parent. <laughs> totally. Yeah. For some people working outside of the home isn't something that they need to feel fulfilled. And they are happy to be 100% in the home with their child. And I didn't know before my son was born which of those types of people I would be. But it became quickly apparent to me after he was born that I was going to need to continue to work outside the home in order to feel fulfilled, both artistically and intellectually. And sometimes when my son asks me, you know, why do you have to go to work? My answer to him is because it makes me a better mom. Going to work makes me a better person because it makes me feel intellectually and artistically fulfilled and it brings me joy. And that in turn makes me a better mom for him. And that's something I've explained to him from the very beginning because, you know, when he grows up, I want him to be able to make the best choices for him and support his partner in whatever his or her best choices are going to be. So I want him to be hearing that from me from day one, basically. Yeah. I love that you're that open and that you're presenting that as a choice that I make and that it's better for me and it makes me be more present for you. Because I think that's a big, big challenge. In fact, I know that's a huge challenge for a lot of the working. I'll just say parents, I can't imagine that it's just women that face that right now because I do enjoy work. And it's <laughs> my mom, if she's listening, hey mom, knows that it's important to get out of the house every day or I just feel like kind of caged. So I have found myself in a similar place and it might've surprised me slightly that part of me very much wants to be out and working every day in some other way than working in the home. So I think that's an interesting discussion that maybe as we were being raised, I think our mothers and fathers fought so hard for there to be more opportunities for girls outside the home. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's a very interesting place to be in as we have had our own children. Absolutely. And, you know, I need to say that the reason why this works so well for me is because I do have the flexibility and the freedom to be working sometimes and to be present with my son sometimes and to be present with my husband sometimes with our son or not with our son. You know, those are all valuable connections that I'm working to maintain. And for me personally, if I had a job where I had to be out of my house, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week, that would not feel right for me. And for some people that does feel right. But for me, the reason that this works is because, you know, this is what's fascinating, right? That I built the careers in concert so that I had the financial stability, the meaning, and the flexibility and freedom to pursue my art, unequivocally dedicated to my art, right? Long before I had a son. But now you're making me realize in the course of this conversation, what I also did was I built that same structure in a way that benefits my family. I never really thought about that before <laughs> just now. But that's a really beautiful thing. Something new to add to my list of things I'm grateful for. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think there's something super interesting there, too. It's that you were completely authentic to yourself in doing it. And then kind of the takeaway there of it being that when one is completely authentic and following their intuition and being in tune with what they know they want and need in their life, that it often serves you way beyond that immediate place of, you know, like, five years ago, the career, right? Like it has legs way beyond that to follow your heart and be aligned with what you know you need. 
Absolutely. And I think privilege has to be part of that conversation too. Mm. You know, I'm in a situation where I don't have to take whatever job is available to me any time of day just to put food on the table for my family. And I'm very aware of that, especially because here I am raising, you know, a son who's going to grow up to be a white male in this world. And I really want him to use his powers for good. So yeah, I think, you know, privilege definitely, I have to be aware of that as we talk about, you know, the way that I've built this life for myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it feels like there's so much transparency there. I mean, like what I'm hearing too is around the transparency of the conversations and kind of who we show our children we are, meaning explaining what it is that I can use myself as an example of like why I choose to work. I mean, not that (laughs) I kind of need to work clearly, but like why have I chosen to do that? Why I'm away from the home? And then kind of using all of who we are as an example of like here and you will have choices in your life too. And how do we make them choices that are inclusive and meaningful and helping everybody else on the planet if they can? Well, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the adventures you've had as a voice actor? And then we can jump over to your other career in concert as well, of course. But I would love to hear what you've done. If you want to share those pieces. I don't know if there's something that has surprised you or you think might surprise people about your life in that career. Sure. So, you know, the funny thing about voiceovers is a lot of times you don't know what you're going to be doing until you get there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I have had auditions where I literally had to sneeze on cue. That was it. That was the whole thing. You know, commute into Manhattan. I live in Brooklyn. Commute into Manhattan for an hour. Wait in the waiting room for 45 minutes for your turn. Go in, spend 15 seconds sneezing on cue three times in a row. Thank you. Have a nice day. Do the whole commute in reverse and go home. So <laughs> so there are days like that. And then there are days where you get, you know, pages and pages of material that you have to work through. You know, audiobooks are a big side of what I do. And obviously there an author has trusted me with their baby, their entire manuscript, which requires, you know, preparation on a whole different level. And that's part of what I like about it. I think that I get bored easily. And I think that if I did the same thing every day, I would begin to get bored and I would find it tedious. I don't know if that's a character flaw. And so the fact that in my art, every day is different is wonderful for me. And that brings me so much joy. So I would say that's one of the sort of daily surprises of it. I would say a bigger surprise that I've had recently is that I was not really social media savvy. That was not really my thing. And I have recently tried to get better about that. And I discovered that there is a wonderful fan group surrounding one of the series of books that I've narrated, that I've done the audiobooks for. And suddenly realizing the impact that these books are having on listeners was eye-opening for me because you can get in a sort of isolated mindset about it. You get the Mm -hmm. script, you have a little bit of communication with the author, but not a ton. You prepare the book alone on your own. You go into a studio where, you know, you're alone in this little fishbowl booth recording and there's an engineer on the other side of the glass. In my case, many audiobook narrators work completely solo, but I work with engineers. And you create this product sort of in a vacuum and send it out there into the universe. Mm-hmm. And yes, there are reviews on Audible or Goodreads, you know, places like that. But, you know, that's a couple of sentences and maybe you read them or maybe you don't, depending on what type of artist you are. So suddenly connecting to this fan group and hearing from them the impact that these books have had on them was a surprise for me. And maybe it shouldn't have been, but it was. And it was a (laughs) wonderful surprise. I imagine that it's because, I mean, having listened to a few audiobooks myself, especially when they're not narrated by the author, I mean, like, 
I can resonate with like Brene Brown's voice. That's amazing to kind of feel like you almost have a connection. But the same thing happens when it's a narrator that isn't the author. I'm listening to Aaron Lochner's book, Chasing Slow, right now. And I couldn't tell you who that person is, but I feel a connection to her, like in a very strange way. Is that the kind of thing that you sense from the fan groups? They feel like they've heard your voice and they really connect with you? Well, I think you're describing an intimacy. Yeah. Because you invite this narrator into very intimate spaces. I mean, you maybe have an earbud in your ear and you've got his or her voice like whispering right in your ear, you know, right. or maybe it's in your car and you're driving alone and that can be a small space, an intimate time, right? And you're inviting this narrator in or mm-hmm. you know, some people listen to audiobooks in bed right before they're going to sleep. There is an intimacy to it on the part of the listener that the narrator is not always cognizant of because yeah. we're not actually physically present there when you're listening to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is well, probably I'm, a good thing. Yeah. Um, well, I'm sure the same thing happens with podcasting. Like I realize there's some like, you know, a reflexive quality to this that like similar things, but I don't mean to cut you off. <laughs> Go ahead. No, no, you're absolutely right. It's the same idea. I think it might be a little bit more distance when it comes to a podcast only because you and I are having a conversation and the mm-hmm. listener is listening in on our conversation. Whereas listening to an audiobook, you do feel as though the narrator is speaking directly to you. So I think that might even be a level more intimate, but I just made that up off the top of my head. So feel free to disagree with me. <laughs> no, I think it's true. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. And I wouldn't have even thought that then if I were to encounter one of the people that has read or clearly the narrator of a book that like, yeah, I would feel like, oh, what was it like to read that book? And I might have questions for them. That's really interesting to then be in touch with a fan base. And there are whole podcasts for that, which is a new world for me also, where the podcast is dedicated to narrators and their experiences and sharing more of that with listeners. So it's a whole new world out there on social media. Why was I so slow to get out there? <laughs> be totally overwhelming. Yeah. I know from even just teaching a podcasting class, like it's really hard to know where to start as far as social media goes and then which one and then seems like you should be on all of them. And like, yeah, there's just instant overwhelm about it. And am I doing it wrong? And so, yeah, my takeaway is one at a time, grow one at a time and kind of just go with whatever feels right. Well, I'll let you in on a little secret, which is I mentioned from this mentoring that I've been doing of other artists, I am now beginning a book project based on those ideas. And as part of the book project, I have been interviewing fabulous artists across all sorts of media. And I have been recording those interviews at a high audio quality. And I don't know what I'm going to do with them yet. (laughs) (laughs) It might be bonus content for readers of the book available. It might be a podcast later on down the line. I don't know. But for now, what I'm doing is I'm releasing excerpts and audio clips to people who sign up to my newsletter through my website so that I can start to put some of this amazing content out there because I've done this careers and concert thing and I've been successful at it, but I don't want people to feel like they just have to take my word for it because there are so many other artists who do this, household names and people who are in what I call the thriving middle class of artists like myself, where you wouldn't recognize us if we were at the table next to you in a restaurant, but this is how we support our families. And I want those stories to get told because I don't want other artists to feel like they can't be their authentic selves. You know, that there has to be something clandestine about their entrepreneurship, like how I used to feel. Yeah. Well, do you want to tell us a little bit more about either mentoring other artists or your other I'm using air quotes, which no one, of course, can see, but your other career and how you kind of balance doing all that you do. Well, remember when we talked earlier about how I had a few 
other endeavors that were not as successful. (laughs) And I hit on this one, the tutoring and educational consulting practice that ended up being the right fit. It's the perfect combination of meaningful because, holy cow, helping kids overcome challenges in learning and seeing those aha moments and realizing the impact that you're having on individual children and on their families because academic challenges impact an entire family is so incredibly meaningful, more meaningful than anything else I've done. And it is more financially stable and it still gives me the flexibility to be unequivocally dedicated to my art because I still control my schedule. And it is scalable because I can train other tutors to work with students using my methods. So this was the winner. And I've been doing this for almost 10 years now. And what's funny is that sometimes people will say to me, oh, so your tutoring supports your acting habit. And that's that same judgment thing that we were talking about at the beginning, right? I must be less successful as an actor because I do this other thing. And in fact, it was my voiceover income that provided the seed capital to start my tutoring business. So that in a nutshell is why I'm doing the mentoring of other artists that I'm doing now because that assumption that people make when they look at what I do is not freeing anyone. It's limiting the person who makes the assumption and it is limiting the artist who feels they carry the burden of that judgment. And we don't need that. Mm, I love what you've just said there too. Like so well stated about that it also limits the person that thinks oh, well, they must not be that good of an artist or whatever their impression is of why someone would need or desire to have another job. Well, this is the thing about judgment, right? Is that it tells us a lot about the person doing the judging, sometimes Mm -hmm. more than it tells us about the person being judged because people who are very judgmental live in fear that they are being judged. So someone who judges you, what they're telling you is, oh, maybe I have a fear that I can't be pursuing my art because I feel like I have to do this other thing. Or maybe they're telling you that if they are an artist that they really wish they could be doing something in addition, but they fear starting that, you know? So I just feel like it doesn't free either party. Mm, I totally agree. Is there anything else that you have going on that you want to share with the audience? You can find my voiceover work and my audiobooks under Caitlin Greer, and that's G-R-E-E-R. You can find my tutoring practice, if that's what you need, under the Greer Meister Group, and Meister is M-E-I, a little tricky spelling there. And if you are interested in what we've been talking about, artists developing careers in concert, you can find more information about that at CaitlinGreerMeister.com or by following me on Facebook. Again, all three names, Caitlin Greer Meister. I'm wearing a pink shirt in the photo, so you'll know it's me. <laughs> And I would love to hear from some voices in your audience and hear thoughts on this podcast, thoughts on what we've said. It's an ongoing conversation, especially from other artists out there. You know, one of the fabulous things about this project and the interviews I've been doing is the conversations it opens up with other artists who say, you know, I've been thinking about creating a documentary based on the idea of an artist's community. And I had to back burner it because I was doing this Broadway show. And, you know, now you've mentioned this. So I want maybe there's a connection for your book and my documentary. And suddenly you're tapped into these conversations and communities and projects that nobody was mentioning to you before. So I would really welcome any of your listeners who want to drop me a line and share what they're working on. I'm thrilled to hear about it. Yes. Yes. And I will put all the links for folks on the show notes over on the website. And yes, so many amazing conversations. And I hope people will reach out and share what their experiences with you as well. Yeah, I think this is a game changer, really, in how we talk about artists and what we all do. And then but also kind of the larger picture of it, too, of that, 
it's okay to have more than one thing because it's also that more global or the wider reaching multi-passionate multi-potentialite discussion as well so i'm so it's glad not, you're tackling all of it <laughs> it's not just that it's okay it's necessary you can't act about being an actor you can't <laughs> write about being a writer you know i mean we have to go out there and have these other experiences to fuel our art and I said the same thing when I was dating my husband. I have a really smart friend who said, Caitlin, if you want to date somebody interesting, you have to give them time to go out and do the things that make them interesting. Mm. And he was absolutely right. And that's true in dating. And that's true in art. Go out and do other things that make you interesting and give you material to build your art on. Anyway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love it. Well, let's get on to the last two questions. Where have you seen resistance come up in your life and how have you overcome it? I think the first big resistance that I encountered in my life was when I was a teenager and I was figuring out who I was as an individual separate from my parents' idea of who I might turn out to be. And I remember having a very emotional, passionate conversation with my father where I said to him, can you accept that I am going to be somebody different than what you had in mind and that can be equally as good? And I think at the time that felt I was unique. I was the only one experiencing that. But <laughs> obviously with hindsight you know, and maturity, we realized that that's something that all teenagers go through, this idea of working through the resistance of our roles as children and in our family structures and growing into who we want to be as adults, which is by no means to say that at, you know, 17, 18 years old, I had it all figured out because I most certainly did not. <laughs> but that to me sticks out in my mind as the real first significant moving through resistance. I don't know. Does that answer that question? Were you looking for something more recent? No, no, no. I think that's gorgeous because I think, I mean, resistance is sneaky, right? Like it comes up in all sorts of ways. And I think there is something about both coming up against the realization for yourself that you're going to be different than what your family or whatever you're born into thinks that you might be. But also that thing of you being mindful enough to speak it to the person that maybe thought you were going to be something different and just say, you know, this could be amazing. <laughs> Just you wait and see what this is going to be. I think it's gorgeous. Well, and the irony, of course, is that I don't think that my parents or my dad in that example had a particularly narrow view of who I was going to grow up to be in right. the first place. But in my head, <laughs> in my head, I was blossoming into the adult I was going to be and I needed to have full autonomy over that process. And it felt mm -hmm. like a very important defining moment for me. Mm -hmm. Which yeah. now working with teenagers, one of the things that I regularly remind myself is to stay in touch with how that felt. Because the way you feel when you're a teenager is unique to that time in your life. And that's part of how I stay connected to my students is to not have lost sight of what that felt like and to honor and value that for them. That that is where they are and that is how they feel and that is their truth. And it's not up to me to tell them to judge that or tell them that that's not their truth. Mm. Yes. And that is gorgeous. I love it. And then moving on to the last question, what are three ways that you can think of to jumpstart joy in your life, in the world, or in other people's lives? The first one we've talked about all the way through, which is this idea of authenticity. I think you're going to find the most joy in your life if you are being your authentic self and if you can free yourself from these external myths that aren't freeing you and aren't serving you and didn't come from inside of you. So authenticity is definitely my number one. The second one, I would say look for opportunities to help other people 
who are just starting out on the path you have had success on because nobody achieves success, especially in the arts, without help along the way from people who have been successful ahead of them. And I think it's easy to lose sight of that. We get very focused on continuing to accomplish for ourselves because it is a very competitive industry and you are continually reproving yourself, as in proving yourself over again. (laughs) So look for those opportunities to help other people It's going to make you feel joyful. It's going to make them feel joyful. And often something that you can do that is simple for you to do, doesn't take a lot of effort, time, money, emotion, will make an impact so much greater on that person who's just starting out. I'm grateful for the people who helped me along the way, and I'm actively looking for opportunities to help other people coming up. And that's another thing I've noticed in the course of my project with these interviews is that some people are gracious and do everything in their power to participate and be helpful on the path that I'm on. And other people are not interested. Sorry, unavailable. And (laughs) that stays with you. You know, the people who make themselves available are the ones that add joy to your life. And when you are in that role, I think that brings you joy also. The third one I would say is focus on developing connections with important people in your life. It could be your partner, it could be your child, it could be another family member, it could be a friend. In my darkest times, and there have been, you know, look, I don't mean to make this whole thing sound like my whole life has been, you know, one wonderful cherry pie of a life. You know, I've had hard times too. And in my darkest times, the thing that keeps me going is the meaningful, deep connections I have with people in my life. So I think every opportunity to have truthful, honest, productive, open communication with those people, we should seize every opportunity. We should make opportunities so that we always feel connected because I think that no matter how hard everything gets, if you feel emotionally connected to even just a few dearest, most loved ones, it's going to help you weather the storm. Yes. Mm, So well stated. Thank you so much, Caitlin. (laughs) You're welcome. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining me on the show this week. If you would like to learn more about Caitlin and her work, you can find information and links to her various websites over at my site, which is Jumpstart Your Joy. And the show notes for this particular episode are at jumpstartyourjoy.com forward slash episode 104. And while you're there, please be sure and check out that Joy Plus You e-course on my site. Next week on the show, my dear friend, Christine Petty, joins me to talk about women and spirituality. We go deep into the territory of learning to love yourself and your own truths and looking for the spirituality in everything around us. It's a conversation that was just such a treat to have after I had been on her podcast, Free Her Spirit, and I invited her to continue the discussion over here at Jumpstart Your Joy. So I hope you'll come back next week. And until then, I hope that your days are filled with so much joy. 